So we're back in Corinthians, as you'll see from here, and um, we're in chapter 15, and today, if you've got your Bibles with you, I'm going to be looking at 35 to 49, um, just as we go through the series. And where we're up to in this book is that so far in Corinthians, I think lots of what we've seen and Paul has addressed has been how the Corinthians are in life as followers of Jesus. It's looked at things like how we should love like him, how we should move in spiritual gifts like him, and how we should fill our minds with good teachings like him. But what happens in chapter 15 is that Paul changes tact. He changes away from a life focus to a death focus, actually. What happens when we die? And he's particularly looking at the issues of coming back to life and what it looks like when we do as Christians. And in reality, actually, these can be some really hard topics for us to really ground in our lives and really drill deep into our walks with Jesus. In fact, I think actually the idea of coming back to life after death can be the hardest teaching in Christianity for us to get our Western minds fully around. You see, it's it's hard because Unlike other teachings in Christianity, the reality of it can't be visibly seen with our eyes in our day-to-day lives, can it? You see, we get to see that the Holy Spirit heals when we pray. We get to see how our lives are more peaceful and secure when we're walking God's way, like Tobias testified to in his brilliant baptism talk. We don't get to see our buddy Bill resurrected with a sweet, new, glory, glorious, eternal body making us a cup of tea at the back, do we? We just don't get to see it. In fact, we just feel the loss and the trauma of seeing a loved one gone who enriched our lives. Trusting in life after death, when it comes down to it, is a true matter of faith and allowing God's Spirit to lead us in confidence There is a new life following the death of this body. And this is hard in the West, isn't it? Because it's not popular to hold an opinion that can't be seen with our eyes. But you know, equally, the flip side of this is that if we get past the challenge and allow God's word to shape a biblical view of life after a death into our lives... It is an incredible gift from God and an absolute game changer for the way that we live our lives. Just some of the ways it changes us are that it takes away a fear of death and brings peace with it. It allows you to face the sufferings of this life knowing that a brighter day is coming. To cope with the losses in friends and family, confidently knowing that they are in a better place when they know Jesus. And it frees us to live in a way that is always looking forward to what will be. Joyfully knowing that the best is yet to come. 
And you know, what we see in chapter 15 in this book of Corinthians is that in Corinth, they were struggling with some of the things that we struggle with in our day, in understanding, in believing, in trusting this. And that there were doubts, discussions, some confused practices in response to the teachings that Christians will be raised again from the dead. And they were in danger of losing some of the power, some of the impact, and some of the blessing of the teaching that you will be raised again to life. So in this chapter, Paul is like a father taking them by the hand. And he tries to walk them back through the steps into the gift of the teaching that one day they will be raised again like Christ. And so far in this chapter, he's looked backwards at Jesus' life after death. He has reminded them of a huge body of evidence there is for the resurrection of Jesus. And then he's highlighted some of the implications of this. Firstly, the fact that Jesus' resurrection highlights that there must be a life after death. He was physically raised after he had died. There must be, therefore, something after death. Secondly, the fact of his resurrection showed that he had now defeated death. He was the one man to overcome the grip and grasp of death. He was therefore king over death. And finally, he says that because he is king over death, anyone in his kingdom, anyone following him, gets to live in the good of the victory over death as well, as his victory over death as well they will also know a resurrected life because of what their king and champion had done. You know, that is the way a victory from a king and leader works, isn't it? When David defeated the giant Goliath, everyone in Israel got to live without fear of Goliath because of their champion. When Jesus beat death and sin and we live in his kingdom, The Goliath of death has been defeated, has been slain. I've clicked on a bit there. From verse 35, where we are today, onwards though, he changes tact slightly. He starts to look forward to what our life after death is going to be like. What it's going to be like for us. And he does this because it seems that, as well as some doubts about whether resurrection and life after death is real at all in Corinth, another barrier to trust in afterlife and resurrection for some was that they wanted to know exactly, precisely what it would be, what it would look like when they would be brought back to life. They were asking what their new body was going to be like. It was a little bit like this, and you have to excuse me, and Chris isn't here, which is sad, but Chris made a joke at my expense, and Last week's preach, so I thought I'd make a joke at his expense. And this week, this is petty as well. They were asking, would they be given a wonderful, muscly new body? Would it look like this? What would it look like? Come on, tell me exactly. Or was it going to be a bit grimmer? Um, Becky told me this one was horrible. By the way, I thought it was cartoony. You can see my technical wizardry here as well. 
giving him a green face. Would it be the grim? Was it going to be our bodies raised again? What is it going to look like? Exactly what? Or was it going to be this is my personal favourite? A total, <laughs> a total new on the Ch- Jessica Rabbit. Is Chris going to just be given some kind of glorious new body that looks totally different? What is it going to look like? We'll leave that there for a second. And we see this in verse 35, but these questions were going on. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body do they come in? It's a bit like the, the people in Corinth were saying, look, when I fully understand exactly what my resurrection body looks like, and how this resurrection thing actually works, when you give me schematics and details, then I will sign up to its benefits. Then I will buy your resurrected body theory. That sounds quite reasonable, does it? Not at all. Well, doesn't Paul either. Do you know, and I think you can summarize Paul's response and what we read next a little bit like this. This is a math summary of it. I'll pipe down with this stupid question, shut up with a silly question, here is how I see it. Oh, pipe down with a silly question, here is how I see it. Am I being too harsh with the way he speaks to them? No, I'm not being as harsh as Paul at all. No, verse 36 to 41, if you look at it in your, your Bibles, I think fits into this pipe down category. So he says in verse 36, you'll see here, you foolish people, you foolish person, Paul here, in his typically gentle and timid teaching style, responds to this way of thinking by saying, it's just sheer folly to demand that you know exactly how it works from God and put this up as a barrier for not trusting that you will be raised from the dead. To exclude yourself from the benefits of the resurrection on the ground that you need to know exactly what body you're going to get when you die. It is foolish thinking, just like eating from dustbins is a foolish pastime. He then goes on in this bit of the passage to explain why it's foolishness to think like this. And I think his argument goes a little bit like this. You don't even get or ask for that kind of assurance in nature and what you see in the world around you. And what you do see from God around you shows he doesn't work in exacts, but incredibly glorious, sovereign diversity. Incredible, glorious, sovereign diversity. And I think he brings this argument to life in three ways. Firstly, He looks at the way a natural seed works. He says, look at the seed being sown. It goes into the ground. It dies and it decays. And it goes through a complete transformation of nature. And if it doesn't do this, no life can come from it. And he points out the truth that a farmer never really knows the body or form that God will bring out of that seed as it dies and grows again. There is variety and difference and a not fully knowing that people are happy to live within life, aren't they? When it comes to the seed, we're happy to not fully knowing. Then he looks, after that, at living creatures He points out that God brings the same diversity out in the way he puts creatures together. 
not all flesh looks the same. You can't get an exact here because God has created every creature unique and different, gloriously diverse. And finally, he fixes his eyes on the heavens and he reinforces his argument one more time by highlighting that God in nature has not given the sun, moon and stars exactly the same type of glory, but has created each with a diverse, magnificent, different type of glory. The reality is, as we look around at the world, that God has created so many different wow factors, hasn't he? That lead us in awe as to who he is. They're different, but all of us cause us to go, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. That's beautiful. It's not one size fits all. So Paul, in this first section of this passage, is pointing out, In this world, natural world of wonder that God has created, the reality is that we live with a load of not fully knowing stuff. Where God acts as he wants to create a huge range of life and diversity from the smallest thing to the biggest things in nature. And he's reminding his people that as we live in this world around us, we see that God is unbelievably creative, isn't he? That's his nature. He's like a painter who simply cannot stop painting masterpieces. But we don't know what each type of these paintings looks like before he has finished and unveiled it. And the seed, the diversity of life and the heavens above show us that this is who he is. And because of this, Paul and Jack... So pipe down your foolish demands to know exactly what your resurrection will look like. Don't put this barrier in place. You live with the reality that God is creative and sovereign in his diversity and that you don't know all the forms of the bodies of the world. Here's how I see it. He then moves on from here to say, look, here is how I see it. Here are some gems for you to take away from. And verses 42 to 50, I think, fall into this this section. Here is how I see it. And what he essentially points out, (coughs) excuse me a second, what he is pointing out here is that we should simply expect the same from God in our death as we see in nature. Because he is the same sovereign, creative, painter God in your death as he is in your life. And we see this continuity in verse 42. So is it with the resurrection from the dead. It's the same with the resurrection from the dead. God's hand is the same that you see in the world around you when it comes to your resurrection. He's the same amazing God. And he then uses two analogies, two pictures, to bring out this similarity between the natural and the resurrected in our mind's eye. And to begin whetting our appetite for the picture God intends to paint of our new life. And the first one he does is he goes back to the seed again. 
Do you know, here in verse 32 to 44, he likens our dead, broken bodies to the seed that goes into the ground. That is so small, perishable, weak, and unglorious when we die. Yet, which because of the gospel contains all the life it needs to burst forth with all the biodiversity of the plants of the planet. And he says that just like the seed, as your body is sown in decay, because of the resurrection work of our king, our bodies contain everything they need to burst forth with the undiable, undefeatable, powerful, overcoming life of heaven by the Spirit. And what Paul is saying here is that, look, although you may not know the exact form your body will take, you can know that just like the seed, which as it perishes, hides within it everything it needs to grow into glorious life. It contains everything it needs in your body because of the gospel to burst into newness. God works in the same way he does in death as he does in life. Secondly, Paul then finishes his argument with one final comparison between the natural and the resurrected. And he does this by looking at how God uses stencils, stencils, cutters, Let me explain. In the final part of this passage, verses 45 to 49, he points out that in the natural world, Adam was the first natural man to be given life. And he was formed from the dust of the earth. And that part of God's intention for Adam was to be the basic stencil for all other people that came after him. We are all made of natural stuff and bear the image and problems of Adam. We all came after him. He then compares Adam to Jesus and says this, that Jesus came later, second, to be a second Adam, a second stencil for humanity, to recut us in his new image. But he, unlike Adam, was not made from the dust. He was from heaven. He was not a receiver, but a giver of life and the spirit of God. He was not first formed in the natural, but in the eternal spiritual places. He was made from better stuff. And in verse 49, he says, just look, just like in the natural We have been cut into a form of Adam, the man of dust shape. Although we don't know exacts in death, what we do know is that we're going to be fully cut into the man of heaven, Jesus' shape. It's the finishing bit of the work. You know, if, if you don't know God this morning, a major part of what he wants to do in your life is this. He wants to cut you a new image. A shape that is a fundamentally new human in you. That isn't born of the perishable or natural. That doesn't suffer from the problems of Adam's likeness. 
of broken relationship with God and death. But that is primarily in your spirit and born of heaven, in the likeness of Jesus. This new stencil is a gift that God says he gives freely for all who trust and follow the work he did through Jesus Christ. And for believers and the Corinthians, what Paul is doing here is he's simply highlighting again the continuity, the sameness in the way that God works through death and life, that he uses stencils. And that although he doesn't give us this exact of how, why, where it comes in the resurrection, by looking at the stencil of Jesus, we get a mouth-watering glimpse of what it will be like. It will be full of heaven full of the eternal, full of the remarkable power of the Spirit. So that's it. That's this section. That's Paul's argument. To those who want exacts when it came to the afterlife, pipe down. Here is how I see it. God is marvelously creative in all that he sovereignly does. And he will be just as creative with our new bodies and life as he has been in nature. Only this time what he does will be spiritual, eternal, and unbreakable, formed in the likeness of Jesus. Don't let exacts be a barrier to you. Know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And will gloriously recreate you after death. You know, at the beginning of the talk, what I said was that Paul's aim through this passage was for the whole chapter was to take the Corinthians by the hand and lead them into the full benefits of the gospel, helping them overcome their barriers and doubts in life after death with reasoned arguments helping them rest in faith that God has won for them a remarkable victory over death and fully intended for them to benefit from this death. Do you know, the Bible is really clear on this point. God intended Christians not to fear death, but to live in full anticipation of a resurrection into new eternal life where we will fully bear the marks of Jesus. God wants us to fully hope in, rejoice in, actively imagine and expect the wonder of heaven in our lives with a confidence. Knowing that although Christianity brings unmatched benefits in life, there is an incredible life not yet realized. That will only be seen when we pass through the unknown into death. And actually, rather than be morbid and downcast about death, he wants us to see death as the Jules Ramey of life. It's the thing we're gunning for. It's the thing we're most looking forward to. Striving towards, calling others to, to the praise upon praise of a new life in heaven. With God dressed in robes of Jesus. 
He wants us to rest in the same confidence that Paul displayed where he said, said this, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's better. I live joyfully as Christ, drawing others towards the true prize. So they don't settle for lesser garbage. But to die is to receive the prize myself that Jesus won for me. What joy. Do you know a a guy who really um, got God's heart for us in the gift of heaven? was C.S. Lewis, and he wrote this, I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even if it involved plucking out his right eye on earth, has not been lost, and that what he was really seeking, really hoping for, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Notorious word in worship if the worship band can just come back up just now Tori's word for us in worship wasn't it was actually about the secureness of hope that we have in future things it was about the secureness that Christ will return it was about these future hopes and, and positions that God wants us to have faith in in his work and the same is true when it comes to death and heaven. I just believe that part of what God wants to do is actually just take us on a journey this morning, just restoring our hope in heaven and excitement for it. And I wonder whether you just stand with me a second. I just want to pray and then we're just going to have a time of worship. We're actually, we just want to reflect on this aspect of what God has done for us. And I'm just going to pray that the Spirit drives it deep. Because it truly is one of the greatest blessings he's won for us. And actually, as a leader here, I do not want anything to rob you of living in that blessing that Christ has won for you. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. We thank you that your word so clearly shows that there is a glorious resurrection awaiting for us in the likeness of Christ. That there's a a heaven of absolute beauty, magnitude and magnificence, that your prize is incredible in life and will be found in death. And Spirit, I just want to pray, would you come now, Lord, and would you in a right way just seed that magnificent faith and that gift in us, just as we fix our eyes on you, as we open up our hearts, and as we worship you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.